I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Broad Experience, the show about women, the workplace, and success. I'm Ashley Miltite. This time how an early career in the Catholic Church paved the way for everything that came after. The truth is that as a nun, I had the freedom to do a lot of things within a certain context. You know, we were not as oppressed and cloistered as you would think. From the convent to the corporation, coming up on The Broad Experience. For the past 30 years, Ellen Snee has been working in the realm of women's leadership. She's run her own consulting firm, working with senior women at big corporations. She herself has been an executive at a technology company, and she's also worked as a coach to individual women. But before all this, she spent almost two decades as a nun. Ellen grew up in a big Irish Catholic family just outside New York City. She was the eldest of five kids. And both my mother and my father had siblings who were nuns and priests. So our household was filled with nuns and priests, relatives, friends, and from the parish. Still, Ellen didn't aspire to be a nun growing up. Her aunt was a nun, and Ellen says at that point, in the 1950s and early 60s, Nuns still wore the full habit, and they seemed pretty strict. She didn't see herself that way. She didn't have any particular plans for a career until her tween years. When I turned 12, one of the priests had come over, and he was like a big brother. And he always, he brought comfort to my mother. He was probably 29 at the time, but he made her laugh and That was an uncommon experience. She had a lot to deal with. And when he was leaving, my father said, will you give us your blessing, Father? Which is what happened in very Catholic settings. And so we all knelt down and he gave us his blessing. And while I was praying, I thought, that's what I want to be when I grow up. I'm going to be a priest she says she felt an overwhelming sense of calling at that moment. So once the prayer was over, she got up and announced her intention to the room. And all the adults looked at each other like, all right, who's going to tell her? Who's going to break the news? And so Father Tom was the designated person. And he said, well, Ellen, you mean a nun? And I said, no, I don't mean a nun. I mean a priest. And he said, well, girls can't be priests. And with that, my mother went in the kitchen to clean up. And my father walked Father Tom to the car. And I was left, you know, with this 
really major calling and recognition, and no one was taking it seriously. Over time, and with a lack of support, the feeling ebbed away. Then, later in her teens, she became a student at Fordham University in the Bronx. It's a Catholic Jesuit university. And while I was there, I met all these young Jesuits. It was the late 60s, early 70s, when there was unrest and riots on campus. But there was this little enclave of young men who were studying to be priests and young college students, men and women, who would gather to pray and go to church and go on vacation and or a day to the beach or a trip. And I felt really at home. You know, today we say I found my tribe, but it was my group. I also had a group that went drinking every Thursday night. So, you know, I was kind of a multifaceted person. But she knew for sure she was drawn to the work of the Jesuit priests, work which has always been about education as well as spirituality and helping the poor. So I went to talk to one of my Jesuit friends And in the course of the conversation, I blurted out that I think I want to be a nun. And he laughed because uh, it was 1972 and all the women were leaving the convent. The priests were leaving the priesthood, not joining. But that desire to serve persisted. When Ellen graduated, she went off for a year to Missouri to serve in a program the church ran to help people in need. And while she was on this program, the director introduced her to a woman who was a member of the Religious of the Sacred Heart, an international order of nuns. I quickly found out that she did a lot of work at the Jesuit University in St. Louis. And so we shared the love of the Jesuits. And by the end of the day, we agreed that I would come up in a month to visit her and her community. And I did. And I ended up joining the community in Missouri, where I I worked in the dorms with the students and in campus ministry, and I lived in the community with the nuns. And I knew this was the group I wanted to be part of. Ellen began her life as a nun by working at a girls' school for a year. Then she spent two years formally training for her vocation, some of that in France, where her order has its roots. Unlike the nuns she grew up with, Ellen and the other nuns in her order didn't wear habits, just everyday clothes. By the 70s, nuns had much more choice over their dress. She particularly loved living in community with all the other women. Most of us would pray in the morning or go to mass in the morning, and then we would be about our work all day until we came home. We took turns cooking dinner. And then we'd have evening prayer together. And then we'd watch TV or read or do homework or whatever, like most normal people. For years, her work was teaching girls and young women. So for three years, I worked in one of our high schools in the D.C. area. And I taught. I taught math. I taught religion. I ran programs. I did everything that was needed to be done. And then I went on to get a degree in theology because I wanted to teach at a seminary. I had decided that I would change the church by teaching future seminarians, which was ambitious and totally naive. 
And when you say change the church, what, what do you mean? Tell me more about that. Well, the church is one of the great patriarchies and the role of women and its attitude toward women was very oppressive. Now, we were fortunate because we were our own order and we experienced that more at the the Rome level, um, unlike the orders of nuns who were controlled by a bishop. But it was still really oppressive and very hard for me to deal with. So I've I've always been systemic in my thinking. And I thought, well, if I could teach at a seminary, I could change the minds and hearts of future priests. All these guys. All these guys. So (laughs) I went to a seminary to do my theology, and I was convinced this was going to work. So I got accepted in the doctorate, and I went off to Rome for this final training. But while she was there, she received a letter asking her to return to the U.S. and run a new initiative the order was launching. Ellen was always drawn to new ideas, so she said yes. But she says during the years she was doing that work, the Catholic Church became more conservative, and she realised changing the men in the church wasn't something she was likely to pull off. So I changed the focus of my study I read a book about women's psychological development and thought that's, I'm not going to try to change men. I'm going to try to develop and advance women. And so that was a fundamental pivot. And I came up to Cambridge to do a doctorate at Harvard and lived in a community with five other women who were also doing advanced degrees. And two years later, I I realized um, that the church had continued to get more conservative. The community was, we were living in smaller and smaller groups. So the sense of community for me had really changed and I had changed. And so it was no longer a place I could live in integrity. Just to confirm then, your your decades um, with uh, the order, that spanned your 20s and your 30s. Is that right? Into your very early 40s? I left when I was 40. Wow. Gosh, talk about a, I, I don't know what to call it, a midlife crisis, but, you know, whatever hits you when you turn one of these big decades, that's huge. Yeah. Yeah. You referred to this already, but I do think that when a lot of listeners hear about, you know, somebody being a nun, either they're Catholic, so they know a lot about it, or they've seen the films and they think, well, that sounds like obeying a lot of orders and being oppressed in a male-run system, which you've you, you basically indicated it kind of was. But um, I, I would have thought that from the get-go, that would have been really difficult for you. I mean, how did you, what was bearable and what made you really nuts? Let me say something about what you said a moment ago which is people who are Catholic, in my experience, have the greatest stereotypes, not necessarily good experience, but stereotypes of nuns. So I learned very early on that, you know, if I was going to introduce myself as a nun and the person was Catholic, I was going to hear about, oh, I had a great aunt who was a nun, and the nun slapped my hand in grade school, and all these horror stories. 
Whereas the further you got from Catholicism, you know, someone who was Jewish or Muslim or atheist, they just found the whole thing fascinating. They may have seen the movies, but they didn't project the movies onto you the way the people who were closer to nuns did. So that's one comment. What was hard? What drove me crazy? You know, I think people always want want to know what was it like to not marry and have children and have sex. Uh, I think that's always the, the question behind the question. I was going to come to that. <laughs> um, you know, and I think that differs for, from person to person. And even after I left, um, when I was younger, I never wanted to have children. I think I was influenced by having a sister who had a very serious physical deformity. And I was afraid that I carried the gene. So the not having children was not an issue. You know, psychologically, I was in a different place. Not having grandchildren is the hardest thing in my life. So there are consequences to choices. I have stories about how I handle that. Not having a partner. What worked for me and will be maybe hard to understand, but because I was in higher education and then involved in a seminary and knew a lot of Jesuits, I had a lot of wonderful male friends. You know, it wasn't a sexual relationship, but it was wonderful, wonderful, genuine friendships. And, you know, in our 30s, when my girlfriends were trying to find someone to marry, they'd often say, you have more friends who are guys than we do. And at times that was true. So I had the the gift of exchange with men. I think I was mostly happy for most of those years. I always felt like I was encouraged to take initiative and, you know, grow. A lot of emphasis on, on personal development, a lot, a lot, a lot. You know, things that people have been discovering in the last 10 years. I mean, that's old hat. You were there in the 70s and 80s. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, just going back, because I, I wasn't expecting to talk about the the sort of celibacy life thing this quickly. But what I was thinking, what interested me so much in thinking about your timeline wasn't so much about, you know, not having sex or whatever. It was more about the time because you became a nun at this crazy time in history when the pill had come in, women were much freer to do what they wanted than they ever had been before. So while all that was going on, you were going the other way, as it were, which is that was what interested me so much is how you felt about that, looking at what was going on in society from where you were. Yeah, so I would say two things. One is that I grew up in a pretty conservative, traditional family. So I wasn't... You weren't thinking about burning your bra or, you know... No, no, I wasn't I wasn't in that even before I became a nun. And the truth is that as a nun, I had the freedom to do a lot of things 
within a certain context that I wouldn't have had otherwise, and that were really in a parallel track. You know, we were not as oppressed and cloistered as you would think. So I, I didn't feel like, I actually felt often like I had more freedom than some of my married or coupled friends at that time. That's so interesting. You mean because you were free to develop yourself and your interests and no man was expecting to have his dinner on the table at six o'clock? No, no. I mean, we were completely collaborative and in community. I mean, this is the story that that I think really illustrates it. In community, my room was across the hall from the principal of the school where I taught. So she was my boss's boss. And we sat and watched TV together and took turns cooking dinner. So it it was egalitarian and communal, really, not just trying to make it that way. It really, we made decisions together. So, you know, in a lot of ways, we were living the principles of that decade. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ellen's years living and working with other women laid the foundation for the work she went into after graduating from Harvard in 1994 with a doctorate in human development and psychology. As part of that degree, she studied the psychological dimensions of holding power for women. She went on to found a consulting company to use the wisdom she'd gained in her first career and the knowledge she'd acquired during her degree to help women in leadership and women who aspired to leadership Ellen had seen women of all different types hold authority within her order of nuns. Some were outgoing, some shy, and nobody was perfect. Nuns are first and foremost human beings. And human beings are really different. And they don't always get along well. You know, they see things differently. There are squabbles, there are unkindness, all of that. And... What I benefited from having been a nun for 18 years is I saw such a range of women, old women, young women, different nationalities, different personalities, different ways of holding authority, different ways of interacting. So it wasn't nothing I saw led me to say, oh, she's doing that because she's a woman. Or because she's a woman, I would expect her to do something different. 
I would say, oh, my God, there goes Claire again. I wouldn't say Claire should know better because she's a woman. But when she transferred into the corporate world, she encountered plenty of stereotypes. When you get into the world of work, what happens is there are too few women at the top. And when you're the only woman, you're assumed to be the expert on everything woman. You know, you could be a a nuclear scientist, but they're going to expect you to understand everything about women. If there are two, the system pits them against each other. So the system, the men around them start to say, oh, she's this, and loves nothing better than to see something happen to make them squabble. You know, it's just the system. The individuals may be very kind, but the system, not so much. She also found that many senior women she met in corporations couldn't answer the question, what do you want, with clarity. But Ellen believes knowing what you want for your life and career is where authority begins. Remember when Ellen was 12 and felt that calling to become a priest? She says at the time, and in her years as a nun, she thought of that calling, that inner voice, as the voice of God. Now she thinks of it as an interior voice of authority, a sort of innate knowing exactly what she should do. It's a voice she says many women have trouble recognising or accessing, in part because of all the messaging we get about what we should be and do. This forms a lot of her work with women, helping them discern what it is they truly want so they can get there. A couple of years after 9-11, Ellen left the East Coast and moved to California. She'd been craving some sun, but it turned out to be a tough move and a low point in her life. The thing that no one tells you is that even though you have friends in an area you're moving into, those friends have lives and those lives are busy. And so when you move to a new city, it may as well be in another country. Finding a community, making new friends, finding new clients. It was all far harder than she'd anticipated. But after selling her condo and moving into an apartment building, she met the man who would become her husband. She also landed a job at a tech company she'd been consulting for. And so I became a global executive uh, around talent and leadership. And I loved it. I loved the community. I loved being part of something bigger than myself. And that's what had drawn me to religious life. And though, although a tech company is not a religious organization, it, it, it was a company that had a real mission and had very strong values. And again, I was able to do amazing things because I had the support of leadership and it was fabulous. Ellen married in her 50s. She says her husband, who was quite a bit older, was very supportive of her work. He died early in 2020. Recently, she moved back across the country to her old neighbourhood in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and began studying on another Harvard programme, this one designed for leaders with lots of life experience. The class is split equally between men and women. I have never in my life had that experience. I mean, to be at this stage in life, and this is the first time, 
it's 50-50. Ellen is 72 now. She says she no longer identifies as the Catholic she once was, but she still feels a calling in her work, which nowadays is focused on women and climate change. So I feel like I still have the sense of mission. I'm still looking for new communities, and I'm still as dedicated to serving others and to serving others as a coach where I bring all I know about discernment to women who haven't had that opportunity to learn how to know what they know, how to recognize their desire, and how to pursue it. Ellen Snee. She's the author of the book Lead, How Women in Charge Claim Their Authority. I'll link you to more information about Ellen and her book and some photos under this episode at thebroadexperience.com. And on a personal note, I wanted to let you all know that I will be wrapping up The Broad Experience at the end of this year. It's had a good 10-year run. I've loved doing it. But things have changed quite a bit for independent podcasters in the last few years. And I feel it's time for me to move on to other things. I'll get into all this in more detail in the final show. And I do have a couple more shows to bring you in the meantime. I know I've said this before, but listeners have always been a big part of this podcast. And when I do stop, it's the community I'll miss the most. That's the broad experience for this time. I'm Ashley Milne-Tight. Thanks for listening. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.